Just over a week ago, SpaceX successfully launched one of the largest rockets ever, a key step in humanity's journey beyond Earth. While the rocket underwent a rapid, unplanned disassembly shortly after launch, the company says it gave its engineers a wealth of data for future launches. The same company also owns the world's largest constellation of more than 4,000 satellites, Starlink. Constellations like this have great potential. Starlink will provide internet services in parts of the world that other telecommunication services just can't reach and has shown its worth in war-ravaged Ukraine. Other constellations address a range of commercial, academic and defence applications. But these two ways of exploring and exploiting space are in tension. Without proper tracking, we face the risk that collisions between small satellites will create a chain reaction surrounding our planet with an impenetrable cloud of debris. So this week we've delved into the archive to bring you an episode of Engineering Matters that addresses this problem. How can we make the most use of space without trapping ourselves on Earth? We would hope that we don't have large satellite collisions. The, the problem with a cloud of... I would say it's not so much a cloud of shrapnel as it is more of a cloud of bullets. And how do you go up with a fishing net or a bucket and, and stop a cloud of bullets? This is Tyler Jones. He's a program manager and senior advisor at the Norwegian Space Agency. And he's talking about something called Kessler Syndrome. All the space agencies are, are trying to understand what this environment looks like and trying to understand legally how they can say, okay, we all need to work together to coordinate because we want we want to be responsible users so that low Earth orbit and the other orbits you know, are, are clean, safe places to be. Kessler syndrome is a theoretical event proposed by NASA scientist Donald Kessler in 1978. As space around Earth becomes more crowded with satellites and debris, the risk of a collision grows. In a sufficiently crowded domain, all it takes is one collision-creating debris. One collision leads to another, and with orbital speeds in low Earth orbit greater than 25,000 kilometers per hour, even small objects weighing a kilogram become dangerous, capable of pulverizing a satellite and littering space with more satellite killers. We don't have good ways to, to deal with this, you know, hypersonic cloud of small bullets. In the worst case scenario, the cloud of destruction could render key orbits around the Earth too hazardous for most applications for years to come. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. In this episode, we have partnered with Fugro to talk about satellite positioning technology. We are currently in an era known to the industry as New Space, which refers to the recent commercialisation of the space sector. Private companies and individuals are playing an increasingly active role in space, a domain that was once controlled by nation states. 
In this episode, we will learn about the opportunities offered by space, as well as some of the new technological advances that are enabling us to make use of them more effectively. We will also learn about the new challenges that are emerging as we take these opportunities. But first, we need to understand why low Earth orbit is becoming an increasingly crowded environment and why orbital debris, once a nuisance, is now causing scientists to think about doomsday scenarios such as Kessler syndrome once again. This means we need to understand one of the most heavily used orbital ranges, low Earth orbit. Where space begins is a subject of debate. This is because the atmosphere gets thinner and thinner as altitude increases. There's not an obvious dividing line between Earth and space. One definition that is accepted by a number of regulatory authorities is known as the Kármán line. It's named for Theodor von Kármán, a Hungarian engineer who worked for many years in the United States. He proposed a definition for the start of space as the point at which aerodynamic lift offers negligible support for flight, and everything is down to inertia. The altitude he proposed was 57 miles or 92 kilometers. This was rounded to 100 kilometers, and the Kármán line was born. It's still a subject of debate, but 100 kilometers gives us a good starting point, although this is not a good altitude for satellites. Here's Tyler again. You're tickling the dragon's tail with definitions. That Kármán line is, it's an interesting definition. And practically speaking, most satellites are going to be over 300 kilometers because they're going to deorbit so fast that it's, it's not going to be too useful for you. So at 100 kilometers, the orbit will not be stable, will not last long enough to allow a decent mission length for most applications. So we need to look at altitudes above 300 kilometers. The low Earth is, is sort of this volume of, yeah, you can say, practically speaking, from the International Space Station, uh, sort of up, up towards 2,000-ish uh, kilometers. The International Space Station averages an orbit of about 400 kilometers up, although it can raise and lower its altitude based on local hazards. So all of these orbital definitions are vague, but we consider low Earth orbit as a shell around Earth, starting at about 300 or 400 kilometers and ending at about 2,000 kilometers above sea level. Low Earth orbit is a very popular place to be. It's easy to get to, it allows for fast communication, well, compared with satellites in higher orbit, uh, in space the distances can get very big very quickly. But also, Earth imaging is a lot easier. This means traffic management is important. So, so we have today the Outer Space Treaty, and in it there's this, not a rule, but a, a very strongly encouraged guideline that says after 25 years, your satellite should be deorbited and or disposed of responsibly. Which means you put it into a graveyard orbit, which is a high altitude orbit that isn't useful for high altitude satellite applications. Useless space. The upper orbit folks, so Mio and Geo, they're really responsible. Mio 
is medium Earth orbit, which is 2,000 kilometers to 36,000 kilometers, and geo is geosynchronous Earth orbit, a high orbit of 36,000 kilometers to 42,000 kilometers. An enormous volume. Uh, they're really good at cleaning up those orbits because there's so few spots that they can use that are useful that they have a common interest in making sure it's very clean. Low Earth orbit is very much still the Wild West. There's a lot of opportunity to go to low Earth orbit. And within low Earth orbit, there are some especially attractive orbits. If you're going to be doing sort of Earth monitoring, you're going to be taking pictures of, of forests, or you are trying to gather data over long time periods with the same, uh, with the same conditions of lighting and, and things like that, you have these orbits called sun-synchronous orbits. And that just sort of means your, your satellite is passing over uh, the same time, local time every day. And the trade-off between the optimum position for cameras versus the radar. And when you take into account power budget and mission lifetime, it narrows the most attractive orbits even further. You start seeing lots of these large Earth observation satellites being placed around 500 kilometres. And... In fact, some of the orbits are so attractive that they do what's called A-trains and B-trains. They just sort of have a string of pearls of these satellites, and they talk to each other quite a bit because they're flying very close to each other. Zipping down this imaginary orbital train track at a brisk 7 kilometers per second, or 25,000 kilometers per hour in more familiar terrestrial terms. Everything would be fine if these trains were the only things in this region. But LEO is also accessible for actors doing anti-satellite tests, for students who are building a satellite for the first time that may suddenly stop working. It was a dumping ground from the 60s through almost the late 90s for rocket bodies and things like that. It's, it's both a very large area, but it's also crowded in some of the regions that are the most attractive and the most common. The development of space is also accelerating. In the European Space Agency's annual Space Environment Report, which we've linked to in our show notes, it describes the cluttering of orbital space. In 2019, for example, 400 objects were launched. In 2020, a little over 1,200 new objects were launched. You know, when you see this hockey stick, that's when sort of your eyebrows raise. And when we suddenly are confronted with an environment where there's a three times increase in the number of objects, we sort of lag in understanding the time critical and urgent need to, to address this. Um, and this was in sort of the, the corona lockdown year. Most of these mega constellations were delayed into, you know, 2021, 2022 are gonna be extremely busy launch years. So, you look at this curve of new objects being put up there. Although constellations of satellites are being launched like never before, the reason space has become so accessible to smaller players is something called the CubeSat, or the nanosatellite. These are a class of miniaturized satellites built from cubes that measure 10 by 10 by 10 centimeters and weigh no more than 1.33 kilograms. We cannot do this podcast and not mention CubeSats. And the use of CubeSats 
it has opened the door to to people looking at using the Internet of Things from satellites. You know, can I track my stolen bicycle using a CubeSat the size of a loaf of bread? Because I'm paying for this service to a commercial company through an app, and it's 20 euros a month to do this. This is sort of a an opportunity that we didn't have 10 years ago. We certainly didn't have 20 years ago. So these smaller satellites make a lot of these opportunities and business models possible. For example. A company called Planet uses three unit CubeSats to take a lot of lower quality pictures, allowing them to track forest fires and floods in different regions of the world in real time. It's almost like you have video cameras <laughs> streaming, and that's really helpful for a lot of folks. And that's possible because of these small, much cheaper satellites. The hazards of our increasingly crowded space are real but so are the opportunities offered by the responsible exploitation of space. So Tyler does not want us to go backwards. I, I don't think size or, or purpose should be in any way uh, controlled or regulated. I, I think what's amazing is that with the miniaturization of electronics and the lower uh, barrier of entry to space, we've seen a lot of really positive things come out. So I, I don't think saying we need to go back to large, you know, national, large organizational satellites it, it is a way forward. But a closer look at how to be a safe space operator or look at the light, how to check that people are doing responsible things before they're launched is is probably what we're going to see implemented. We'll, we'll probably see more onus being put on the commercial launch providers to ensure that the satellites they're taking up will operate in a safe way. It is a problem that will be resolved by responsible operation and by technology. And for one of the latest advances coming to the domain of new space, we need to go back down to Earth. Being a geodesist, uh, I really understand very well what the connection between space and, and Earth is because actually everything in space, even every satellite, will, will follow the gravity pattern of the, uh, of the planet uh, because uh, obviously gravity differs everywhere on the planet. If you don't have the deep understanding... This is Mark Hine. He's the CEO of Fugro, a geodata company that performs survey work on land and out at sea. If you don't have the deep understanding of, of planet Earth, and, and that's how you're trained as a geologist, you cannot actually do anything with, uh, with satellites in space because they have these, uh, these tracks that they follow and they follow uh, not a nice circle, but they fo follow the wobbly uh, pattern of, of yeah, actually the, the mean sea level of the planet, uh, which, which is the gravity model, uh, which we call the geoid, uh, which is uh, uh, yeah, the basis of all the measurements you do on the planet, but also in space. So there's a strong connection between our planet Earth and space, or anything out there. Any satellite, and there's a lot out there, including a lot of waste nowadays, which is actually following the path of the gravity of the planet Earth, and that is uh, that's interesting. That also brings us to, um, to where Fugro can play a role there, because 
if you don't know where items are and that is applicable to anything we do now on 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 planet earth but also in space then it becomes uh, quite uh, quite a problem and it's not just important for the space environment to know where a satellite is because what what can you do then with uh, with a photo that you take or uh, some measurements that you uh, that you take out of a satellite if you don't know where the satellite is and you can only know where the satellite is if you have really accurate positioning and this is where Mark says Fugro will get involved with new space. We know where things are and we know it under the ground, we know it at the surface, but also into space. And this is where, really where we go into space right now with the accurate positioning to, uh, to accurately locate yeah, low orbit satellites, which is uh, the, yeah, the future and uh, the technology of the future where, where we can do a lot of things with. It doesn't really matter if we position a car or a low orbit satellite, it's uh, the same principle. Until now, although they had been making extensive use of satellites, they were not providing their services in space. I don't see it necessarily, are we going into space only now? We were there, but now we are there with another uh, service where the opening of the market of, of yeah, thousands of low-orbit satellites that will be launched in the future with all sorts of purposes, uh, measurements, but uh, other reasons as well. A couple of years ago, we saw it coming and, and, and we had to work on it because technology is obviously the differentiator there, combined with the expertise of the people that we have. And what they are providing is a high-accuracy, real-time satellite positioning technology called SpaceStar. It allows the satellite to receive precise orbit and clock corrections from those higher-altitude geostationary satellites. Which means a centimetre accuracy. And the normal standard satellite navigation uh, you use in your car, for instance, doesn't have any correction signals. It only knows that it needs to be on the road. It doesn't really know what lane it is. Now, with the correction signals, and we can do that on land, but also in space, we can actually have centimeter accuracy uh, uh, data because we have a network of correction uh, yeah, stations around the planet. We upload that information into the space again and then send it out via geostationary satellites. And, and if you have the right software and antenna to receive that correction signal, you can have yeah, centimeter accuracy anywhere on the planet and into space, certainly at low orbit level. Mark says that knowing the source of a measurement accurately is critical for understanding the measurement. It's not just about satellite safety, there is a performance improvement too. So my name is Javier Tegador. I am a geodesic scientist working for Fugro, and I am the technical lead for the development of Fugro's next generation measuring services and also our services for uh, a space domain. Javier has a background in telecommunications and geomatics, and in the past he has worked for the European Space Agency. He explains the limitations of satellite positioning systems up to this point. There are a few positioning techniques for satellites. The most widely known is to use a GPS, a standard GPS receiver. On top of GPS, many satellites these days are also set up to use one of the other positioning systems, such as the European Galileo, the Russian GLONASS, or the Chinese Beidou navigation systems. The problem with that is that 
the accuracy you get from a standard GPS receiver varies from a meter, best case, to several tens of meters, worst case. And many applications do require high accuracies. So what they do today, they get the data from the GPS receiver, they download to the ground, and they post-process it to be able to know the satellite orbit very accurately, but after a few hours of latency. So it was possible to know where the satellites were to within a few metres, but sometime after the fact. It is the need for this ground processing time that adds the delay. So what we are doing is delivering that high accuracy in real time without any kind of ground intervention. Javier says there's two big problems caused by the current state of technology. One is when you're trying to do collision avoidance, you know, the space is more and more crowded. And what satellite operators do these days is try to predict where the satellite will be in the hours and days ahead. And that depends on the accuracy of your current solution of position and velocity, right? So if you get, you get a one meter uncertainty in position and something similar in, in velocity, when you propagate that ahead, your error envelope multiplies. Javier says that with his Space Star system, he has improved the satellite's real-time accuracy of velocity and position knowledge by a factor of 10. This improves the prediction of future position and velocity by the same amount. As well as reducing risks, this means that course corrections are more accurate and efficient, prolonging missions and making space more sustainable. More on this later in the episode. And the second problem relates to the Earth observation capabilities that Mark mentioned. So many satellites, for example, have sensors to measure any property of Earth, whether it's altimeters, they have cameras, they have radars to measure any property of, of Earth or the atmosphere or do remote sensing, right? And for that, they need to know exactly at which point in orbit they take a given measurement to be able to extract the most information from the sensor, right? So standard GPS accuracy is not enough for certain applications. On altimetry, you know, just measuring the height of the of the orbit with respect to the surface, they can do down to a couple of centimeters. But you lose a lot of the sensor resolution, right? So that's why you have to improve the orbit knowledge position before you can actually fully take benefit of your sensor. And this is before we take into account all of those future possibilities that greater certainty could allow. As space develops, it may be possible to perform maintenance on existing satellites rather than dooming them to a fiery re-entry or consigning them to a cold graveyard orbit. And it remains to be seen what other Earth monitoring capabilities may be enabled by this improvement in accuracy. All that was needed was to test it in space. Enter a company called Loft Orbital, a startup satellite company based in San Francisco that flies and operates consumer payloads. Its motto is space made simple. People say, hey, you know, I've got a great business case because I can make money from leveraging data. Uh, or, oh, I have a great technology. I think I just invented the best hyperspectral and smallest hyperspectral camera possible. And that's all great because that's your business case, what you should focus on. But then how do you get that transformed into a satellite? How do you launch that satellite? How do you operate that satellite from your ground stations? And then, oh, once you finally have the data, you can go back to your core business. 
This is Peter Van Down, Chief Technology Officer at Loft Orbital. So the idea of Loft was to say, hmm, you can make a CubeSat, of course, with a smaller payload or instrument. That is not a problem. This is a great business uh, and uh, nothing to say against that. But we were looking at the next stage up. So our class is typically microsatellites that are, uh, you know, like small fridges. So 100, 150, 200 kilograms, you have more power, more space. So Loft Orbital often accommodates payloads that are slightly bigger or more demanding than you might get on a CubeSat. And uh, in our case, we said, hmm, what about trying to get more than one payload onto missions like that? Offer an experience to a customer which looks as if it was just his own dedicated satellite, but with a maybe slower, slower duty cycle and try to make that happen in such a way that we can do it quick and fast and, and in an as standardized way as possible. So we started off with the idea of customers bringing their own payloads, but us doing all the rest, including the launch, uh, communication, the operation, uh, the pre-testing and so on and so on. So uh, there's a lot of skill sets, facilities, and time and money that the customer does not spend because he doesn't have to integrate uh, into a satellite. Fugro has worked with Loft to test the Space Star technology on orbit, which is why opportunities exist on Loft Orbital's most recently launched satellites, YAM2 and YAM3. It was on one of the Loft Orbital's most recent launches, YAM2, that Fugro sent up their Space Star technology for testing. Peter says that his microsatellites have spare payload capacity in which he likes to test new technologies that he might want to incorporate on future missions. Loft Orbital provides an environment for its customer payloads that's easy to interface with and keeps it safe and functioning. But it sources and engineers the satellite components from a range of different suppliers to meet the mission needs. The idea is to take on all of the complicated engineering and integration of the satellite sector, but give this user-friendly experience for the customer. Part of our, our business model is to leverage the verticals of service that are offered by other people. Uh, and one such example is uh, the platform or what we call uh, the satellite bus. So the solar panels, the power, the thing, but it doesn't do anything. Let's call it like a, in the case of a truck and a trailer. It's the truck that pulls the trailer, but the real payload is what you are pulling and where you're going and how you're going uh, to places. And then next to that, we leverage uh, commercial ground segment services. For example, they work a lot with the likes of SpaceX and other launch providers to get into space, usually on ride-sharing launches where a number of smaller missions pay part of the cost to get to orbit, often with one major mission dictating a lot of the launch parameters. The technology stack that we have developed has everything to do with that standardization of interfaces on board. So we do design our own flight hardware and the environment in which all those payloads live. And that environment where we put our payloads is fully separated from the bus. So we're not a, a usual system integrator where you come with your payload and say to a satellite bus provider, hey, can you put it in? And they go, yay, we will do all that. And, do a lot of engineering. A way to think about this is that Loft basically makes a standardized smart box that fits into different satellites. 
and that box is where all those payloads live, where they get their power. I always com compare it with a home, right? Uh, you need a home, a loft, <laughs> if you want, uh, where you need to live. And we make sure that you have a mechanical, electrical and thermal environment where the payload works within its uh, capabilities. We make sure that we offer the communication environment so you can talk to it uh, and all the logic on how you operate it, when you operate it, what you want to do, what you need to do is in our software. So we've totally decoupled, if you want, the payloads, payload operations and everything that is mission specific from traditionally what is done in the bus by a single supplier to something that we standardize on board. And that whole environment we refer to as the payload hub. As the technology evolves and new capabilities emerge for smaller satellites, LOFT looks to make its own capabilities more sophisticated. Now the payload hub in missions that we're doing as of 2022 also includes its own communication channels. Uh, so we're talking to LEO and GEO satellites, we're looking at inter-satellite communication, uh, it has its own transponder with a higher up rate, so that if you want to patch and change your software, you're not linked to you know, the typical uh, data rates that you usually get when you have satellite contact at the poles, things like that. So everything to make that habitat, that payload environment as, as rigid, as nice, and as easy as possible. Peter says that for his customers' purposes, more accurate data correlation is important. But purely for his satellite operations, it comes down to something called space situational awareness. There, it can make a lot of difference because whether you make predictions of knowledge, correlations or how you are maintaining your position uh, or the threat of a collision with another spacecraft, uh, whether that is 10 or 100 metres or 10 centimetres, oh, that will reduce thousands of, let's say, wrong messages where you are in that sort of cone of predictability just because of uncertainty versus, ah, but here I know exactly where I am and I can safely ignore it, or hey, I'll be within a, a bigger safety margin. So I think Star has this interesting opportunity to assist and help both with space situational awareness as well as improve the use of data, whether this is on board or on the ground, by being able to correlate to precise positions. It would not be a space story without mentioning propulsion, and the miniaturization of electrical propulsion systems is adding new capabilities and mission longevity to smaller satellites. But this will also bring new complications. Anna Annesland is an expert in plasma physics and is the founder and CEO of ThrustMe, a startup that is revolutionizing electric propulsion for small satellites. When we talk about electric propulsion, it means using electricity, so from solar panel, to create the, the thrust. So all, all propulsion technologies that use uh, solar arrays or other energy sources uh, get electricity to generate thrust. So that's the definition of electric propulsion. And in that range, you have uh, many different uh, technologies and one of them is the ion uh, you have many different names so it's ion drives ion thrusters gridded ion thrusters hot thrusters these are all slightly different in technology but the basic principle is to accelerate a stream of ions charged particles to very high velocities each ion gives a tiny amount of thrust to the satellite but this accumulates and as there's no air resistance in space a small thrust can move a large object over time. 
you do not need to move fast to build up delta v over time. Delta v is change in velocity, and it's how orbital maneuvering is described. And in that way, you generate a relatively low thrust compared to chemical systems, but with a very high efficiency because of the acceleration. And this is why you can make them much smaller, uh, so the, the fuel efficiency becomes very important. Back in 2011-2012, prior to ThrustMe, Anna was working with her colleague and future co-founder of ThrustMe, Dimitro Rafalski. At that time, electric propulsion was focused on getting large satellites from low Earth orbit to geosynchronous orbit efficiently. High power, high thrust, high thrust uh, to power, that was the most important parameters. And then during this time, we also saw miniaturization of satellites and we saw that these satellites also need propulsion and advanced propulsion. But at that time, the propulsion systems were not adapted for smaller satellites. They were too expensive and too complex. Anna and Dimitro attended conferences, heard big corporations talking about miniaturized electric propulsion, but realized they could do it better. So they wrote a business plan in 2014 and launched ThrustMe in 2017. One of these challenges was heat management. The power uh, available on a CubeSat today is much, much higher than what is uh, in the past. And actually, it is so high that now it's not really the power that is generating the power that is complicated. It is to handling the heat uh, that is becoming uh, complex. Something that's not widely understood is that while space is cold when not in the direct light of the sun, it's also a vacuum and therefore a very good insulator. Heat can only escape from a body via radiation, which is relatively slow. So let's say that you have 50 watt of power going in for generating your thrust. 50% of this will go away with your ion beam and the thrust generated. But maybe 50%, maybe less, will be thermal waste. So we use this waste heat to internally in the system to heat up our propellant tank and so on. But then you have to radiate it away as well. Or you have to give heat to the satellite bus. This is not necessarily a, a good thing. So here is a, a, a big challenge. And, and we have worked a lot on the thermal management, not to give uh, too much uh, heat to the, to the satellite. Another innovation was the use of iodine as propellant rather than xenon. This was proposed in the 1960s, but as a corrosive material, iodine was too complicated to become practical. And the reason why we could develop this is that we are also uh, experts in materials and in plasma physics, and not only engineering of propulsion. We have also backgrounds in the semiconductor industry where you use deliberately materials that do etching and uh, react with surfaces. So in that way, we could control the iodine in, on ground. The use of iodine rather than the noble gas xenon is an advantage because of the rarity of xenon. Cluttering space is a problem, but actually polluting it is not. So when people talk about sustainability in space, they usually mean prolonging the life of the missions 
or avoiding the use of rare earth materials, which could be lost to the void forever after being used. Thrust Me's customers might want their satellites to manoeuvre for a number of reasons. They might want to change orbits to accomplish a mission goal, or they might want to maintain a very low orbit for a longer time, using the propulsion system for drag compensation and prevent re-entry. Or they may want to use the system for collision avoidance. Even though it's not a rapid reaction thruster, it can still avoid a threat if there is advance warning. This comes back to having a precise handle on your exact location in real time. Which is more important with this kind of engine. Yes, it's more important because you need to understand how to move and where to move compared to the other objects. So either you have an object that is uh, not cooperative, so you have to move and you have to understand how this object moves compared to you. And then you have two objects that are still operating. So should you move to the right, to the left, uh, up, down? I mean, it's, it's like uh, traffic management becomes a, a real uh, important uh, issue. And I think this is something we, we need to look at uh, in more detail, not only on paper, but also on testing in space and also with hardware. It's not enough to just think about it in, uh, in legislations and laws, but also in, uh, in real actions and how to actually do the maneuvers. Accurate positioning, responsible deployment and efficient propulsion technology are all vital to improve our outcomes on Earth and to avoid the looming challenges posed by the crowding of space. We are all benefiting from the opportunities offered by new space, but if we're not careful it may become so challenging to use low Earth orbit that for some of the smaller players it becomes unattainable and unsafe. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Bernadette Ballantyne. Sound Engineering by Ross McPherson. Series Supervision by John Young. And our own mission-critical system is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, Fugro, with thanks also to our guests from the Norwegian Space Agency, from Loft Orbital, and from Thrust Me. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reb.media, on Twitter and on LinkedIn. <laughs>